On this episode of 1.21 Geekawatts, we check in with comic book writer and legend Marv Wolfman. And Kevin Hines joins me to say goodbye to the man who helped build Marvel Comics and the comic book industry itself, Stan Lee. Now, straight from Titan's Tower in San Francisco, or New York, depending on what story you're reading, this is 1.21 Geekawatts! Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Geekawatts, episode number 34 for November 2018. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. Do yourself a favor, and me, do us both a favor. Subscribe right now and never miss an episode. I'm Stan Lee. I've been writing stories for the young generation for the past 30 years. During this time, I think I've learned a lot about what young people think. More importantly, I think I've learned a lot about what young people are. We're going to try to present a voice that somebody will listen to. The voice is needed. We hope it will be ours. The world lost the man who was regarded as the father of Marvel Comics, Stan Lee. Stan created or co-created the marquee characters of the Marvel Universe, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, the Hulk, Avengers, Doctor Strange, and a gajillion others. He changed the comic book industry and his characters would one day reshape Hollywood. To help me properly eulogize Stan the man Lee, I welcome one of the hosts of the hilarious, nostalgic, celebratory, and nerdy in all of the most endearing ways podcast. Screw it. We're just going to talk about Spider-Man. Kevin Hines, welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Thank you for having me, Brad. Uh, oh, yeah. And I love getting a chance to talk more about Stan. Uh, <laughs> I do. It's, it's, I, I think he, it, I, this can be crazy. I think sometimes he doesn't get praised enough by nerds mm-hmm. because he gets praised too much by people who by don't really know. Yeah, yeah, the mainstream loves him so much because he's the face of Marvel that I think sometimes nerds downplay how... Yeah amazing and important this guy was yeah. to everything which seems weird to say in a way but but you're right it's only like as we record this it's been it's been 4 days since Stan passed away and and I, I don't know about you but like my social media accounts are still like predominantly about Stan Lee um, memorial statements and original artwork and tribute ads in the Hollywood trades and that sort of thing it's sort of like a, a head of state has yeah. passed away or something but but to your point i feel like um the story has already run the arc in just days of like he was a god to enough people saying like hey let's uh, let's not give him all the credit and then yeah. people like yes yes we know that yeah and now we're know, already getting back to that reaction of right. well let's now's not the time to dig yeah, into that exactly. stuff the like let's talk about how great he is <laughs> yeah uh, yeah it's it's a wild ride and yeah I mean uh, for what everyone knows or mo- probably most of your fans know this but like. Stan for a long time took all the credit, mm-hmm. uh, uh, whether he took it uh, willingly or whether it was just thrown at him and he accepted yeah. it. I, I don't, I don't know. Right. Uh, but he sort of widely accepted, like, oh, I created all these characters, me and me alone, uh, and that obviously is a huge injustice to Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and a number of other creators. Right. Uh, and then because of that, there's been a backlash to saying like, well, Stanley didn't do anything, which yeah. is also not true. Stanley, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko. All now passed. Guys, yeah. 
without those three guys, there's any yeah. one of them, I don't think the Marvel Universe exists. Yeah. I think you can remove any of them because you remove Steve Ditka, Spider-Man's gone. And I don't think there's a Marvel Universe without Spider-Man. You remove Jack Kirby, everything else yeah, is everything gone. Everything else is gone, right. And you remove Stan Lee, those guys don't get together. That doesn't get made. It doesn't yeah. get sold. It doesn't get – the. he doesn't connect those universes. He doesn't bring the audience. Yeah. Stan Lee brought the audience and said, hey, look at what Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko are doing, everyone. Right. And everyone said, I like that. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he sold Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko to kids on the news. He stands. Do you think that in a way then that's sort of why he became the face guy? Do you think that it was almost more convenient for him to realize, well, I'm, I'm Mickey Mouse of this brand, so I guess we might as well just embrace that? Like, I, I never really got the sense that he that there was... <laughs> this seems weird to say. I didn't get the sense that there was a crazy ego from Stan Lee because that's exactly how he wrote, which was this yeah. magnanimous personality all the time. Yeah, I think he was just an outgoing guy. I think he was like that anyway. I think he yeah. would be just as egotistical if he like ran the Denny's in your neighborhood. <laughs> He'd be the guy who came to your table. Like he's he's the guy who owns a diner and stops by every table. Hey, how's that, how those pancakes? Your how those yeah. pancakes going? Good, good. Hey, how's your wife? And just like right. that's just who he is. He's very outgoing. That's how he's always seemed. Everyone who's met him tends to have very good experiences with him. Uh, he's sort of always on, it yeah. seems like. So it seemed, It just seems like it was very natural for him to slide into, oh, I am Marvel. And he's right. also writing all the, every comic. He's writing like the back matter. He's just producing such a sheer content of yeah. material that it was almost impossible for him not to become the face. Sure. Then he's the guy who went out to Hollywood first and tried to sell these things. Yeah. Uh, and then... I think the people who followed him up sort of embraced that about him, and Stan Lee Presents was put in the front page of every mm-hmm. comic. I remember when I was reading comics, I think it was the 90s, and they had like the recap pages. It was like a cartoon Stan face <laughs> uh, uh, at the, and on those pages. Right. Is that uh, like the evolution of the little box? So in the 80s, right, there'd be like that little box at the yeah. top that says For Matt Murdock. Is that, yeah. There was like a fold out page. Right. Like, Here's the recap of everything that's happened recently. Right. I think I remember like a little cartoonish Stan sometimes it. on those. And it was just like, yeah, he sort of became like a Mickey Mouse to Marvel Comics, <laughs> uh, which is crazy when they are made up completely of Mickey Mouse type uh, right. faces. <laughs> uh, but he was good at it. You know, he's good at, uh, even when he gets interviewed now, I'm always amazed that just, he seems to say things. He loves Marvel. Mm-hmm. Marvel mistreated him a little bit here and there. They mostly were really good to him. But he just says the right things in interviews, yeah. and he seems to love Marvel. Did you see the video that's going around of him talking about how much he loves his fans? I think so. There are a few that are doing the rounds right now. Yeah, there's and a video of like him very recently. Yeah. Like very Oh, old. is it is it the the interview that he was doing with like Roy Thomas or something? Like days before he died. Is it like in a living room or something? He's sitting like in the living room, but there's nobody else in the shot. Oh, okay. And it's sort of just like it seems like they're just talking to him and the cameras happen to be on and then they sort of like focused on him because it's like, oh, this is good. And he just talks about how mm. much he loves the fans. He's like, I owe them everything. And mm. he just kinda goes on and on. It's Really sweet and really sincere. So, as comic book fans, and you probably have gotten this, where it's like sometimes you're like almost embarrassed to say you love comic books. Sure. Like sure. in college, my my uh, room would be just filled with comic books. My friends would who loved me and were my good friends <laughs> and still are would make fun of me for sure. it. And I was like, yeah, it's the thing they make fun of. But also, like Stanley didn't wasn't ashamed of it. Definitely not yeah. for most of his career. Maybe yeah. at the very beginning, he was really proud to be the guy at the heart of the Marvel Universe, right. and he should be. 
There, there's another quote that's so there are a few like quotes that have been cherry picked out of his history yes. that that have are making the rounds right now. Some of the which were making the rounds even before, like for over the last two years, yeah. we're endlessly seeing the stand soapbox of the bigotry is wrong. Yes. That's been yeah. a an evergreen for strong, the last two years. Strong stance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, I'm glad he took it. I guess. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> And one of them, uh, I feel like there's one floating around right now that does sort of speak to the notion of, like, I I was embarrassed for a long time saying, yeah. this is my job, I write superheroes, and, you know, yeah. and break eye contact or whatever. Um, I wonder if, if he sort of had, I feel like the, the greats in, in nerddom all sort of have this arc of, you know, some sort of like a Mark Hamill kind of thing, whereas, like, you're, you do yeah. your thing that you're famous for. You're you're epically uh, renowned for it. Everyone loves it. Yeah. Maybe it gets into the a little ripe, the off, the dark times or whatever. And you're that's still what you are. And you're like, I don't, I don't even want to talk about yeah. it. Before coming back around to, you know what? I made a lot of people happy. And I think so. I think Stan though hit it weirdly at the perfect time because I think he hit this sort of embarrassment sort of pre-Fantastic Four. Because he'd been doing comics for like 10 years. And I think it was just like he's writing romance books and Mm -hmm. science fiction books and horror magazines. And he's like, yeah, it's a living. (laughs) I hope I can use this as a springboard for something I'd enjoy more. And then I think when he started doing the comic books, he's like, well, this is fun. And people seem to like it. Mm -hmm. So I'm in. Maybe he wanted to do more even beyond that. But I think by the time like the Marvel Universe took off a a few years after... Fantastic Four, number one. Yeah. I think he was pretty happy with his lot in life and, right. and, and saw the sky as a limit. I think if you read like the Untold uh, Tales, uh, the uh, Untold Marvel storybook, they, they talk a lot about how Stan just like right away was like, these characters could compete with Disney. Like these characters yeah. are, we have a stable of characters that are so powerful and so interesting mm-hmm. that everyone should would want to read these characters. Like when the Hulk TV show happened, Stan must have been like, of course, what right. took you guys Definitely. so long? <laughs> uh, this should have been a live action show the moment we wrote it. Because um, I think he believed in these characters. Yeah, yeah. I, I we, we keep sort of dancing or jumping over around the timeline with him, no, which, which is fine. And I think that's one of the coolest things that, that sort of amazed me about his career in that... Um, He's had so many acts in his life, right? With uh, with all the memorial pieces, sometimes you see these videos that span his whole life. And I've seen some like, I have no idea who that young guy is. I don't recognize that yeah. man at all because, you know, for for me and and I suspect for you to an extent, right? Stan was Stan is a guy who lives somewhere in the 80s um, with with graying temples because he's the mascot in chief, whatever yeah. that we sort of discussed about with Stan's soapbox and narrating Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Yes. Um, but of course, he had been working for decades, for decades, for yeah. forty years already. When I see pictures of him from the '60s, he looks like a completely different person. Yeah. He looks so young. He really does. I watched a clip of him on uh, to tell the truth that just oh, was wow. going around, um, where it's like, "Who's the real Stanley?" <laughs> and um, his voice is so distinctive. I'm like, "How do you not know it's Stanley?" Right, right. But because <laughs> they don't know, uh, but he doesn't look anything like I, I picture him in my head. Yeah. Doesn't look like. No, sort of the all. wizened old yeah. uh, huckster right. that he becomes. <laughs> he looks like this so the, this young uh, smirky guy, yeah. and it's it's interesting because like obviously he was young, of course, right? But, right. but you know, Fantastic Four number one came out when he was thirty nine, I think, is what yeah. I read, and that's you know that's not amazing. young. No, it's not old, but it's definitely not. He's not a youth. He's not a kid at that point. Right, and and yet it's still like the beginning, capital T, capital B, sure, yeah. for for so many people. And 
and and back to the the notion of social media blowing up like I had people reacting oh god no that Never in a heartbeat would I have thought would ever really care. I certainly don't yeah. think that they're comic book people, but I realize um, that even if it's uh, 90 seconds at a time, the guy became a movie star, like in yeah. his 70s, in his right. 80s. <laughs> we all know who he is now because he shows up in right. every single Marvel movie. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is, it's so interesting to think that like, a lot of people know him but just that's from exclusively that. Exclusively, how they know, him. like he's the old guy that shows up. And yeah, it's like a joke they make yeah. in movies about like where's the Stan Lee cameo and right. like yeah, it's very interesting that that's such a way that people know him. Yeah. And like you said, like we know him from like introing Spider-Man as Amazing French's sure. voiceovers. Yeah. Stay tuned, true believers. <laughs> yeah. Like that's the Stan Lee I know, not even the face, the voice For sure. of Marvel. Um, yeah, he's done so much. He lived sure. in 95. I mean, like, it's you have plenty of time to have multiple, multiple phases. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I was talking a little bit about the Mickey Mouse thing before because as I'm trying to think, you know, everyone is gets all grandiose about, like, we haven't seen anything like him since. And, and I almost started to go to, like, Walt Disney the man in a way because he... So he paves the foundation for this entertainment empire alongside some talents who, in both cases, for both men, probably deserve, as we've discussed, yeah, yeah. a little bit more credit sure. than probably they, they receive. And then that empire grows. It will live beyond him um, under the custodianship of, of people who, who I think that they really strive to honor and aspire to what Stan did. Like, I don't, I don't see Marvel or Marvel Studios necessarily saying... Not that they ever did, and you know, because he's sort of been re- away from both of them uh, in act away from both the comics and the movies for for a while. But yeah. I don't think anyone is like, all right, we're going to pave our own path now, a brave new world. I think that ultimately, Kevin Feige and the studios folks are like, no, we want to we want to honor what these things were, and yeah. I feel like Marvel Publishing sort of does the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the core of these characters was strong. Yep. And that came from Stan and Kirby and Ditko. Like the, their collaborations created very strong core characters. Some of them got tweaked for the better as time went on, but the big ones don't change that much. Like yeah. Spider-Man hasn't changed that much right. since Amazing Fantasy 15. The Hulk for sure hasn't changed that much. Uh, Captain America hasn't changed that much since he returned to the Avengers. Uh, and they work because they're just sort of simple, pure things. And yeah, the creators know to go back, like, let's use what works. Even when like they do things where it's like, oh, let's, like using Iron Man is a great example, right? Robert Downey Jr. certainly gives Iron Man his own spin. Mm -hmm. But there's still something about this sort of warmonger who turns to like a hero. Like he's a guy who sold weapons and now fights against those wars. Right. there's something, and it like sort of also like he builds it himself. Like it's, he's like a hands-on CEO. Like that's important to that character yeah. too. Like all that stuff stays that's true true. No matter what, you can't lose it. And if someone tried to adapt that movie and sort of removed all that stuff and just wanted a guy in a suit, it wouldn't work. Yeah. And the the movies, the superhero movies in the past that haven't worked, mm-hmm. or the age, or the spans where the comics sort of lose track, are the ones where like it doesn't seem like the same character anymore. You're like, this isn't yeah. the Thor. This is I can't, like this isn't the Thor I knew, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's important. Like they'll have those moments where they're just trying to chase a buck or chase a story or sell something, and then when it gets good, it's always when they reset and go, "What made this work? Yeah. What makes this work?" And that's true for everything, right? Sure. Uh, the Daniel Craig James Bond movies got better because someone sat down and said, "What makes James Bond cool? Yeah. Not yeah. what gadgets do we throw in the next movie?" Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I and as far as publishing goes, uh, I. I can't remember if, if you guys have talked about this on your podcast or not, but I'm a big fan of Ms. Marvel, the Kamala Khan right now um, storyline, and feel like at her core, it's Spider-Man. It's it's like the first you know 15 issues, not not exactly. I mean, it's yeah. the, it's the crossover. In fact, I think they've built on what that is really nicely. But at its core, it's a teenager who's yeah. balancing family and friends and awkward love life and school and super heroics. Yeah, I think they removed guilt and replaced it with sort of uh, uh, just an inner nobility. Yeah, um, that maybe Spider-Man doesn't have, but he had to like strive for. Right. Uh, but otherwise, it's very similar. I mean, Spider-Man became a, a blueprint for every character of that course. followed him. Sure. Especially any young character. So right. yeah, Miss Marvel for sure is one of the many comics that sort of like, yeah, let's do this. And yeah. It works for that. Miss Marvel's great. We talk about it very briefly. Because uh, I think Will finally started reading it. Will's behind; doesn't read a lot of current comics, <laughs> uh, where I read a ton of them. Right. Uh, right. Miss Marvel, yeah, Miss Marvel's great, and Miss Marvel feels like a character. Uh, I don't think Stanley could write Miss Marvel; it doesn't have the no. uh, necessary background. But it definitely is a character that I think if he heard about and knew about, he'd be like, "Oh, I'm very proud that this character exists in my Marvel universe." Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there's an interview of him saying that. That's some, I love when he gets interviewed about current stuff in yes. the comics. Like someone asked him about Miles Morales. Yes, yes. And he was like, was that sounds great. Right. He was like, he, he, his reaction immediately was like, yeah, of course, that they should definitely bring another, like, this sounds great, a kid, a mixed-race child of Spider-Man. That sounds very true to the character I saw him as. Yeah. It's like, great. Oh, and when Donald Glover, I mentioned this on my podcast, but Donald Glover, People were like, oh, he should be Spider-Man during his community years. Mm-hmm. And Stan Lee was asked that question, what do you think about that? And he was like, yeah, he'd be great. As, sure. He'd be great as Spider-Man. <laughs> Stan Lee's no idea. He's like, this funny young actor? Yeah, mm-hmm. he could be Spider-Man. Yeah. I don't care. Uh, you're trying to get me to, to take the bait and say, no, Spider-Man's white. No. Right. Stan Lee's like, no, Spider-Man is a personality. Yeah, yeah. What, what I kind of like about that, I, I do remember you guys talking about that on the podcast, and I don't know if it's just because we're recording this in the UCB uh, in yes. New York, but between answers like that mm-hmm. or even like the Marvel method of writing, which sure. is which is collaborative to almost this bizarre, like I almost can't wrap my brain around it sometimes, the fact like we're going to plot it together, mm-hmm. you go draw it, and then I'll figure out what they say based on what you draw. It, Stan almost seemed like this... A, like a yes ander who didn't even know that he was doing it that much between like who do you want for Miles Morales sounds great why not um, yeah. wh- what what's the dialogue I'm gonna write sure yeah let's do that you drew it I'll write it that's a great way of looking at it it's they're sort of improvising off of each yeah. other there's because the the collaboration of talking it through at the top is very back and forth and sure. yes ending like oh what about if we did this yeah. and oh oh then we could do this oh maybe not that but this oh that's even better right. and sort of that back and forth is for sure how I would imagine uh, at least during the early days the creations of these characters would go and then yeah the artist goes and writes the story without him Crazy. so he's that artist is going to take his own liberties and mm-hmm. pacing uh, questions and make choices that they didn't have to think about in that brainstorming moments like oh how do I fill 22 pages or 18 pages whatever it was at the time and figure out oh uh, we need a little bit more here how do I get from point A to point B Uh, and then Stan has to take that and make sense of it and add dialogues and 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 punch it up Mm -hmm. and so he has to build it he can't I mean, sometimes he does, but if he makes fun of the thing, it has to be sort of lovingly. And right. I'm I'm making fun of myself as much yeah. as anything else, yeah. or it doesn't really work. Right, right. 
Well, I, I like that as, as two guys who are improv is yeah, a large sure. part of our religion. Um, <laughs> yeah. That always sort of appealed to me, the, the notion of, of, of yes ending that hard as they construct it. So uh, as, as we wrap up, uh, and I've been referencing your show, um, I, I want to take a turn for the cheesy. On Screw It Spidey, you guys have uh, roughly uh, 115 segments per episode, That's right. right? Between cover and art that you like and that sort of thing, giving awards at the end. Um, and, uh, what was our way of selling the podcast? <laughs> what it? if we had more segments? That would make it more uh, appealing to people, right? And I don't know if it did or didn't, but everyone talks about them, so it worked somewhat. I, I love it, and, and I love it when you guys first brought it up, that it definitely seemed like, I guess we're supposed to do this, so um, how about um, other podcast news? Yeah, right. I don't like this category. <laughs> I don't know why we ever agreed to this one. Um, so I would, I'd like to go down the, the, the awards route, um, sure. and ask you what your favorite, what is the best Stanley cameo in your opinion of the 400 that he's done? What, uh, what appeals to you? Uh, in the movies. So yeah. what's my favorite Stanley cameo? The one that jumps out the first, uh, is probably, was it Amazing Spider-Man 1? Uh, which is a mediocre if not bad <laughs> movie where Spider-Man and the lizard are fighting yeah, behind Stan where yeah. he's wearing headphones. It's very silly, maybe almost too much, but it is very memorable. Yeah. Uh, and it was very enjoyable, that one. That is a very good one. Yeah. I am going to go with um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 yes. in which Stan is in a spacesuit talking to the Watchers. Yes. Um, and both sort of recapping previous appearances but when at some point like I think they they do him and then they cut back to him later on and the watchers are walking away and he's like no wait I've got so many more stories I swear to god I teared up in the theater right then and thought this could be the last one and it would be perfect. Yeah, it feels like the last one now, the way I you know. just said it. Uh, I mean, he's done a couple since then, yeah, so right. I guess it wasn't. Yeah, I would. Uh, my honorable mention would be when he played Willie Lumpkin in the first yeah. Fantastic Four movie. Um, I agree. Uh, just because it feels like a pretty good casting for that part. Right. I also, I, they, I just watched a smash cut of them because of his passing, and uh, it was fun to watch certain movies would have their own trends. Like I think in the Iron Man movies, he always played. A, he played yeah. like celebrities. Yeah. He played like Hugh Hefner. Just long enough to turn around and say what? And somebody Basically, else. Yeah. And then like in the Spider-Man Tobey Maguire movies, he always saved somebody. Mm. It looked like mm -hmm. like he kept moving people out of the way. That's true. It it was like weird. Like each director's like, oh, in my movie, Stan does this. Yeah. Uh, they didn't all do that, but some of them did. It. It was like fun just to see like That's these true. little sub stories. Yeah. Of Stan. And he also seemed game for whatever they wanted to do Pretty with much. him. Right, exactly. By the time we get to like Ragnarok, and he's some sort of cyborg, uh, hair cutting oh, right. robot. Right. That's a weird one. <laughs> it's so strange. But but when I saw Infinity War, I went on uh, opening night, uh, like a good uh, Spider-Man sure. fan, a good superhero <laughs> fan. And when he he showed up driving the school bus, the crowd went nuts. Heck yeah! And it it, it felt like oh yeah, this is as big as the so intro good. of any of the superheroes for this audience. It's so good. All right, um, I'll, I'll throw one more category at you, and that would be the the best, your favorite Stan Lee catchphrase, which can either be a Stan Lee-ism, yes. or it can be, or we can extend this to to characters, like if, you know, maybe it's Excelsior, maybe it's with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. What's what's the takeaway? Uh, I mean, I should say with great power comes <laughs> great responsibility, but that uh, uh, feels like it's it's, it's overgrown, even where Stan started it as. Right. I don't think he meant it to be that much. Um, the, I mean, 
true believers is probably the one that first, I always think when I want to do Stan's voice, I always want to say, true believers, you know, it's like, uh, listen up, true believers, which is not maybe his most famous, like Excelsior and Enough Said are probably bigger, but I love true believers. There's something about that, like, it's almost cultish. You're a true believer of Marvel. Right. But that sort of jumps to my mind as far as catchphrases. For sure. Um, with great power comes great responsibility. That's hard to ignore, of course. Excelsior is so much fun. If for no other reason, now I, I enjoy it freshly again because I just saw some clip of him doing it at a convention. He shouts it out uh, and and then almost immediately undercuts it like, someday I'll figure out what that means. <laughs> that, that even he's sort of hit this point of like, I, I don't know. These yeah, are just it, the words you want me to say. just a catchphrase. It's just, it's like a bazinga. It's, right. it's just a word yeah. he says. Uh, and there's and there's moments where he says it. He seems to get five years younger every time I see a it clip. Does, like he true. like sort of hobbles up to a microphone, yeah. and then all of a sudden he goes Excelsior, right, and you're like, oh my god, he's back! And yeah. then he sort of, all right, and now let's go sit down. Exactly. I need to recover. Back to my nurse. But yeah. I love he just embraces it. it. He isn't somebody who's embarrassed by his silly phrases. He he embraces uh, it so much. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard not to get. I know you cannot not get swept up in in all the motion around that. All right, so season one of Screw It, we're just going to talk about Spider Man is available in all the places where you'd find quality podcasts. Um, Season two is happening. Is it a thing? Where it's it's in to Scott. There'll be something. It might not be Spider Man. It might be a new podcast Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that will. uh, Be be more. Basically, this was the end. We were going to end not not doing anymore, but now. We're talking about how to continue it, and we're probably going to try to create something where we can't do screw what you're going to talk about Spider-Man and talk about the Hulk. Sure. Uh, so we have to figure <laughs> out what it is we're doing uh, or whether we just want to do like another thing with Spider-Man. Yeah. And it'll probably be more expansive than that. Whatever it is, we will release an episode of Screw It. You're just going to talk about Spider-Man to, say, to at hey, least point people to where we've gone next. So you've you've heard it here first. Screw it. We're just going to talk about Alpha Flight. We'll be coming I mean, soon. And, uh, we're that'll... big John Byrne fans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for helping me to pay tribute to Stan the Man. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Uh, I'll talk about Stan with anyone on the street who stops me and mentions his name. So that's a promise. Which in this part of New York City is entirely possible that that could happen with regularity. (laughs) You know, I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. It is said that following Stan Lee, no comic book writer has had more of his characters adapted for movies and television than the veteran powerhouse Marv Wolfman. In his 50-year career in comics, alongside some tremendous artists, Marv has co-created Daredevil villain Bullseye, occasional Spider-Man love interest The Black Cat, Blade the Vampire Hunter, who is also himself a vampire, and is also sometimes Wesley Snipes, Marvel's Nova and the Nova Corps from Guardians of the Galaxy, DC's Cat Grant, played by Callista Flockhart on Supergirl, Tim Drake, aka the third Robin, and so, so many more. 
But the creations he's most linked to are the new Teen Titans, which he and artist George Perez helmed for a landmark run beginning in 1980. The series introduced the characters of Cyborg, Starfire, and Raven, who fought alongside Robin, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, and Beast Boy to battle villains like Slade Wilson, aka Deathstroke, yet another Wolfman creation. In 1985, Wolfman and Perez also created the 12-issue limited series Crisis on Infinite Earths, which both celebrated DC's 50-year history and also rewrote it, smoothing out five decades of continuity. I had the opportunity to talk with Mr. Wolfman at the Garden State Comic Fest back in July 2018. Since we're a few months removed from that event, let me set the stage. Teen Titans Go! to the movies was just about to be released theatrically, and production had just concluded on Titans, the live-action TV series for the DC Universe streaming service. So there was a whole lot of Titans in the air as our conversation began. If my math is correct, it's been roughly 50 years since DC Comics introduced the world to writer Marv Wolfman, a man who has become a legend in the field. If you've somehow missed reading his work, which uh, includes series-defining runs on New Teen Titans, Tomb of Dracula, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and so many more, then you've got a significant hole in your comic book reading experience. Marv, it is a legitimate pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much. Uh, you've created or co-created so many characters that have become massively popular in comics, but also, of course, have had a significant presence uh, on screens large and small. For example, the Teen Titans are everywhere right now in so many different... Thankfully. So many different... <laughs> there they Teen are right Titans there. Go. It's come Teen, out in two weeks. Teen <laughs> Titans go to the movies. Don't miss that. Go to the movies. See the Titans. Um, what, uh, what, when you hear that a character that, that you've created, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, Cyborg or Starfire or Raven, whoever, when you, when you hear that a character that you've created is, uh, is being adapted for TV or film, what goes through your head? Do you feel excited or do you feel actually a little nervous, like, oh, don't mess this up, please? <laughs> no, I'm usually excited about it, uh, because they're taking a character, they're obviously intending to use that character in some fashion. They may make changes, but if they keep to the spirit of the character, uh, that's great. But, you know, my job was to do comics. Yes. And if a TV producer, an animation, or a movie producer, or somebody else wants to come in and do the movies, you just hope that the, uh, what they do is good. But we really don't expect to have a lot of say in it because I may have created it but I don't own it that come uh, either Marvel does or DC or sure. some someone else does so you just uh, hope that they do a good job and you're always excited because it means somebody else cared about your work that's a that's a great way of putting it and uh, I agree it's certainly like it doesn't detract from what you did what no. you brought to it my books are still out there almost everyone has been reprinted in hardcover uh, or is part of the way through the reprinting and hardcover so all my stuff is there yeah. and that doesn't take away anything you just want everyone to continue to like them so you hope that people do a good job and so far i've been very very lucky sure i i think that that is sort of <laughs> certainly the healthiest approach to it and i believe i've heard like the alan moores of the world and neil gaiman's of the world say like hey they can they can make what they want to make i still stand by what i made and, and that's wonderful um that that said do you have uh, opinions of how your characters have been translated onto film and tv if for no other reason because there's been live action there's been animation different animation styles would no especially that Teen Titans is going to hit movie screens in, in such a short amount of time. Is that an iteration that you enjoy of them? 
I like the Teen Titans Go uh, TV show, yeah. and I've seen the movie. Um, but I like the Teen Titans cartoon show. It's hysterically funny. In its own way, the characters are close to what we did, though the storylines and the concepts are totally, totally made up. But what it does is, since the Teen Titans was created for teens and up, originally, it's allowing a lot of young kids to come into the uh, come into its mythology and. It's incredibly popular with young kids. I have nothing to do with the show, so sure. you know, one way or the other, it doesn't matter to me. But they do such a fun job that kids love those characters, and hopefully they will continue to love them and then pick up the comics and certainly pick up my old comics because, they're, as I say, they've all been reprinted. Absolutely. Many of your partnerships with specific artists have resulted in legendary runs for those certain characters. You work with George Perez, of course, on New Teen Titans and Crisis. Um, uh, Gene Cullen on Tomb of Dracula, for example. In your opinion, what makes for a really constructive and successful writer-artist combination? You know, it's hard to say because uh, Gene and George, though absolute masters, uh, I mean, two of the best artists ever in the history of comics, uh, but despite the fact that that's the one similarity, we handle the projects very, very differently. Uh, with Gene, uh, I presented very, like, 10-page plots, broken down page by page, because that's how we did everything back then. Uh, most people just did one or two pages, but I wrote every single action down, and Gene pretty much followed it and did magnificent work. I mean, utterly unbelievable work. But he wasn't... He didn't change the story, he just told the story that I was uh, that I sent to him on a plot. With George, I'd come up with the idea for the story, but then the two of us would get together. Mm. So, I don't know what, um, what makes a great team outside of the fact that we both work together uh, well and we understand each other and we understand what the project's about. And in my mind, and I, I believe in both of their minds too, uh, certainly George, because I talked to him about it, the fact that we were on the same wavelength for the characters, that was all that's important. It's not about us, it's about making the book the best it can be. Mm -hmm. So Gene and I thoroughly understood what we were, uh, the world of Dracula uh, that we were presenting. George and I fully understood the world of the Teen Titans or Crisis on Infinite Earths or any of the other stuff we did together. So even though George was a co-creator and a co-partner in it, and Gene was the was the incredible artist on it, on Tomb of Dracula. They were so dissimilar otherwise. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Stylistically, yeah. It's a, a dramatic difference between the two, but I know that the, uh, the the final result was so fruitful, it was hard not yeah. to be a big yeah. fan. It's, just, it's about the book. It's not about us. And, yeah. and fortunately, in both those cases, and in other cases as well, we were, as I say, on the same wavelength. Right. Uh, I know that you've talked about this before, but I, but I can't resist uh, asking you a little bit about the, how Crisis on Infinite Earths came to be. I'm guessing that there had to have been an editorial edict to try to consolidate and make sense of 50 years you, of continuity. Yeah. You would guess that, but you'd be completely wrong. <laughs> wow. All right. Um, I, was, uh, I was writing Green Lantern at the time, and a fan wrote in saying that the DC continuity was very confusing. And I answered that one day we need to fix this. 
And that day, I was heading to a convention. I spent uh, time just sitting there thinking about things and came up with the crisis. Then I pitched it to them. So crisis was not an internal project. It wasn't something that they came up with and then looked at me f to be the writer. This was a project that I came up with and pitched That's it to them and convinced incredible. them uh, to do it. Uh, I've always written that. You can see the very first issue of Crisis in 1985, and I wrote the inside front cover, and I mentioned the whole story there, too. So, mm -hmm. it's it, it, this was a pitch by me to the powers that be at DC, and they loved the idea. Did it require any any finagling in a way? I mean, this is a cast literally of thousands in a way, with some massively dramatic shifts, and even that is is an understatement of, of what happened in that series. Um, did, did you ever have to twist their arm a little bit to say, like, here's what I want to do with Supergirl, just hear me out? <laughs> uh, well, in the case of Supergirl, she was on our list. And I never expected they'd actually agree with it, but I put it on the list because there was a movie coming out. Sure. Uh, right. I put right. it on the list because I, th because it was vital to me the thing to m if we were going to change the universe, Superman had to be the sole survivor of Krypton. In the future, maybe there'd be a new Supergirl. Uh, so I never thought that they'd never bring back Supergirl, sure. but the idea was to create it correctly and not make all the mistakes that they had made with Supergirl, because the book wasn't being followed, uh, had very poor readership. I love the character, uh, but uh, unfortunately she was not a fan favorite until after she was dead. So, <laughs> Oh, the indignity. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, with, with Supergirl, it was just a matter of uh, presenting it and amazingly DC uh, agreeing with the reason I put her on. Sure. The biggest problem was working with other, other writers who didn't want any of their characters touched, mm -hmm. but we had to make certain hard decisions and we had to get them on board. Well, that, needless to say, was, was a tremendous series, and as a kid growing up in the late 70s and, and early 80s, was seismic to, to uh, my collection at that time. Some of my first exposure to your work was through new, the New Teen Titans drug awareness issues, yeah. actually. Um, for what it's worth, they made a, a serious impression on me, so uh, mission accomplished. I've, he I've heard that from a lot of people, and I'm always grateful to hear that. Uh, because that's what we were hoping for. Yeah. How, how do assignments like that come across a writer's desk? Is that something that, that originates with you, or is, does that uh, come from editorial, like, hey, does anyone want this? And The <laughs> FBI went to D.C. to get Superman to be the, the character in this anti-drug book, mm -hmm. uh, series of books, because we were doing it for the third grade, fifth grade, and sixth grade. Uh, I guess we didn't care if they were drug-addled fourth graders, so I don't know, <laughs> but third, fifth, and sixth. Sure. And... Um, Jeanette Kahn, who was the publisher at the mm -hmm. time, uh, said, you know, we could do Superman, but we have this other group that's incredibly popular called the Teen Titans, and that's closer in age to the kids, and we think that would be better. And the FBI went, okay, fine, that's, that's fine. And because I was the writer of the Teen Titans comic, they asked me if I'd like to do it, and I said yes, and the rest was history. Mm. Amazing. 
you are currently writing Cyborg for DC. Raven, yep. yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, do you have a preference between writing for characters that have a deep personal connection with you or in your history, or or you prefer diving into characters that you've you've not really touched before? Uh, I like characters uh, of all sorts, so it doesn't matter to me. Uh, which one I'm writing, as long as I have the freedom to play with it. So characters like uh, Cyborg or Raven, mm -hmm. I would have a lot of ability to play with since I created them. Uh, but I love writing Superman. I mean, he's he was always my favorite character, and I love the character, and I love writing him. So, in a way, that and Green Lantern, and at Marvel, Spider-Man, and Fantastic Four, and all of those, um, I like doing both, but I like to have that ability to uh, control the story. Yeah. Well, uh, again, in conclusion, even as I just look at the, the images on your table, I am uh, seeing many, many of the happiest memories of my childhood, and I'm uh, so you. grateful for that, and thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. If your appetite has been whetted for the world of Marv Wolfman, there are a lot of places to turn. Titans Season 1 is now airing online on DC Universe with a second season in production. Teen Titans Go! to the movies is now available on Blu-ray and digital download, and Season 5 of Teen Titans Go! is currently airing on Cartoon Network. Plus, holy multiverse! Warner Brothers has announced an upcoming animated crossover between the Teen Titans Go! characters and the original 2003 animated series version of the Teen Titans. That's a lot of Teen Titans. I sure hope Marv is getting residual checks. If the printed page is more your speed, Marv is still making it happen as the writer of the 12-issue miniseries Raven, Daughter of Darkness for DC, and he recently contributed the story Man and Superman to the Superman 100-page Super Spectacular. So get reading, would ya? That's it for this episode of 1.21 Kikawatts. Many thanks to my guests Marv Wolfman and Kevin Hines. Thanks also to Dave O'Hare, Sal Zerzolo, and the good people at the Garden State Comic Fest for giving me the opportunity and access to talk with Marv Wolfman. And thanks to Eric Belomo for recording the conversation so that you can hear it. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ear canals to nerd out with you. It truly means more to me than you know. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? And what deserves to be ignored like a fully priced item on Black Friday? You can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's many social media channels. They are the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts. And on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Gigawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www.121gigawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. I don't know if you're aware of this, but every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcast section on iTunes. It is so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. We want this show to grow, and you can help. Whether you're a subscriber or not, I would be so grateful if you left the show a review, hopefully a good one, over on iTunes, which will help more people find the show, because that's how computer algorithms work. 
If you're not an iTunes user, you can also find us by searching for 1.21 gigawatts at soundcloud.com or on Player FM. You clearly found us on one of those platforms, so congrats! Browse the episodes listed there and check out another one. I'll even make a recommendation. If you enjoyed this episode's interview with Marv Wolfman, I encourage you to check out episode number seven when I had a long conversation with fellow comic book writer and living legend Louise Simonson. She also authored and edited some landmark comics and co-created some characters that went on to film and television glory. That's episode number seven of 1.21 Geekawatts. Give it a listen as soon as you finish this one. And please share this episode or another one that you've enjoyed on the social medias with a friend who's also into geek-skewing entertainment. I'll bet they'll like it. Huge gratitude to the umpire of the Unbalanced Signal, composer and my co-producer, David Sisko. You are and remain the greatest, Sisko. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all of those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's nerd rock band H2Awesome rocking out our theme song live. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Geek wants is what we got From Doctor Who to Aqualad You might meet Luke and Leia's dad Pop culture that is super rad Hosted by some guy named Brad He'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks 1.21 freaking gigawatts Why don't they take us seriously? Titans, you guys are never actually doing anything heroic. What about that time we discovered that sweet diner and they had that food? That wasn't even a crime and you didn't save anything. We save room for design!